It's Tom Bilyeu here. And if you are addicted to the relentless pursuit of greatness, then I've got something special for you guys. The Motivation Daily Podcast by Motiversity. It's your daily fix of motivation, inspiration, and wisdom featuring the best speeches and speakers on the planet. We cover it all. Life, business, relationships, discipline, purpose, mental health, sports, studying, focus, you name it. With exclusive speeches from heavy hitters like Coach Payne, Billy Allsbrooks, Marcus Taylor, Dr. Jessica Houston, Walter Bond, and more. If you're ready to take control, level up, or just crush your day, then Motivation Daily Podcast is your secret weapon. Search for the Motivation Daily Podcast and follow wherever you listen to amazing podcasts. Welcome back to part two of my conversation with Stephen Bonnell, the well-known streamer and social commentator that everyone on the internet calls destiny. We are talking about how rapidly the world is changing, how internet culture is really beginning to influence everything in the mainstream. We really had a fascinating conversation. We go into a lot of different topics, including some things around sex. So again, uh, if you have little ones in the car for this one, I would not pick this episode as the one to listen to together. But if we are talking to the adults in the crowd, I think that you guys should buckle up uh, because in part two here, we get into some pretty interesting topics that I think you guys are going to find really useful in terms of how to broaden your own views, um, how to use contradictory evidence to keep yourself from ending up in an echo chamber. It's a really, really interesting episode that I think you guys are going to like a lot. So without further ado, I bring you Destiny. I'm Tom Bilyeu, and welcome to Impact Theory. Everybody's like in their house, they work in their cubicle, they go home, they get on Discord, they play a game, they go to sleep, they don't have any partners, and they're miserable, but they don't know why. Playfulness is a big part of the game. Playfulness usually comes when you have the confidence and also that you can see if you understand uh, what emotion you're trying to create and you can actually create that emotion, and if you can create that emotion in a way that keeps them a little off balance, in a way where they don't feel unsafe, it still needs to be playful. Um, I'll give you an example. So the first the first um, sort of sexually charged words I ever said to the woman who is now my wife was, sit your ass down, you're not going anywhere. Sure. Now, the number of people that have heard me tell that story that then tell my wife, oh my God, like he's abusing you, like you've got to get away. Mm -hmm. And she, of course, finds that hilarious. But be, given the context, given where we were in our relationship, she found it uh, playful. And I won't say funny because she was excited because she was interested. So that was certainly a part of it. But when you can create a sense of like playfulness, where almost like comedy, where you say the thing that you're not supposed to say, but you do it in a way that like lets the person laugh or be in on it. That's good. Really quick on that. There's a really good clip that a lot of people didn't understand. Um, to joke about a thing, you have to have a full understanding of the thing. And that makes a joke work. There's a show on, I think it was a Jubilee dating show or something. And I think the girl asked this group of guys in front of her, she was like, if we had a fight, like, how would you manage that in our relationship if we had a disagreement? And one of the guys that answered, a guy who's wearing like a hoodie or whatever, and he was like, his answer was like, I think the first thing I would do would I would 
try to gaslight you into thinking it was your fault. <laughs> I would create an unhealthy sense of dependence where you constantly felt like you were chasing my approval and I would give it to you in little bits so that you became desperate for my attention and I would have you, like his whole, it was like a psychopathic answer. And in the end, she ended up choosing that guy as the guy that she liked most. And everybody's like, oh my God, look, he was a total asshole and it worked. And it's like, no, it's because the joke like showed you that right. he was aware of all of these like toxic things, but he could joke about it. But like, there's like a lot of like truth you can communicate with humor and stuff sometimes too. Um, but yeah, it, pl it plays into that idea of like, being playful and sometimes even being like, being able to say something, fuck, I, I hate this. I actually hate this conversation because like so much of this is like a learned intuitive thing. Like I don't think I could write a guide to it, but there's a way that you can like shock somebody without actually like being crazy, right? Like, but it's hard to, it's hard to tell you where exactly you draw the line. And there are even, there are probably times where I've overstepped. There are times where I've made jokes. I just had an abortion debate with like two women last night. And I'm pretty sure before the show, I could tell by the reaction that I was probably pushing a little bit too far. But like sometimes like depending on the person, depending on the context, depending on the scenario, like you could push really far with certain types of humor and it'll be like, like you said, it kind of keeps them off balance where they're like, it's kind of funny, but you, you, yeah, you can't do it too much because sometimes you can go straight to the like, that was way too creepy, way too far. And I'm completely out of here, but. Yeah, but so. It's interesting that you say this. So playing with that, you you are going to miss sometimes. Absolutely. Uh, but finding that edge is a lot of fun and you will sometimes miss. But if you can create like unexpected moments to get a reaction, like there was a time, this is after I was married. So trust me, my wife knows all about this story, but I was being a wingman for a guy. And so there was a girl that he really liked and that girl brought a friend and we were actually on a business trip. And, uh, we're at this diner and I was like, definitely flirting with the girl. Mm -hmm. And I said, um, I'm going to ask you to do something that's surprisingly intimate. Are you willing to do it? She's okay. like, well, no, you know, I mean, you got to tell me what it is before it's like, no, no, no. I need you to say yes before I tell you what it is. Okay. Will you do it? And she's like, Okay. I said, cool, I just, I'm gonna take my sweatshirt off and I'm worried that my shirt is gonna pull up. Do you just hold my shirt down? And so she held my shirt down while I took my sweatshirt off. And she was like, you're right, that was surprisingly intimate. And so it became this funny thing where the punchline was like really mundane, but by creating that like unease of like, I'm gonna ask you to do something, it's gonna be weird. But, and then delivering something that's ultimately safe, it really is like being good it's a similar thing to being good at comedy. Like you have to know where you can push. You have to know what's going to keep people off balance, give them a sense of like sort of uneasy anticipation and then you release it. Yeah. But and this is like, this is like deliberate with lots of practice. Cause again, it's hard to write out. Cause the, the reason why these conversations suck sometimes, cause like I know there's somebody listening at home that's like very awkward, very kind of quasi autistic or whatever. And it's yeah. like there, yeah. Like there are times where- But it is the truth. It is, yeah. There are times when you talk about like, um, like people talk about like enthusiastic affirmative consent, you know, like in order to, you have to have a girl, you know, saying like, yes, and getting blah, 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 blah. And it's like, sometimes I'll go this route if I'm like very unsure, but like generally I think I can generally feel it out. Mm. Um, but then sometimes people will ask like, well, hold on. Well, I'm not sure, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, okay, well, if you're asking, you probably should just get like the verbal, like, yes, right. or no. like if you can't tell like you, um, because there are even times where like, even again, even for something like that, like I can mess up sometimes or like I'm misreading stuff, especially with like new partners and everything. Mm. Um, yeah, a lot of it is like, you have to practice it a lot. I will say one thing in regards to the Me Too thing. Um, this is something that I try to be very conscious of a lot. Um, and it's something that I think would help a lot is when you're dealing with women, this is so weird because as a guy, 
You'd never, ever, ever feel this around a woman. It's it's weird. It's it's hard to empathize, but it's even hard to empathize because being around a bigger man won't give you the same feeling because bigger men don't touch you either. It's weird when you're in a position where you're going to be engaging in an activity where there's a guy that could kill you at any moment if he wanted to or make you feel like you go or make you feel really uncomfortable. And that's like part of your recreational get together with that person. This is what, like what sex is for women. So that arrangement is intrinsically, there's a lot going on there. A guy is thinking like, I just want to fuck this girl and that's it. And the girl is like, I don't know how far I want to go. If I say no, is this guy going to feel this way? Like, is it like, uh, it's like, if I blah, blah, blah. There's like a million things that they're like thinking about or trying to manage. When I'm trying to give people advice for like what hit on people or how to pick up people, I don't that often because fuck it. Because you either know or you don't, I don't know. But like, if you were going to do something, something that I, this is like a deliberate conscious thing I try to keep in mind is always try to do your best to make the woman feels like she has a way out. Mm. And if you want to call it manipulation, more often than not, that'll actually get you laid than anything else. So like, it might be a really subtle thing. Like I'm driving, let's say that I go out on a date with a girl and we get back to my car. Um, at this point, what I really want to do is just turn my ignition and drive it to my apartment, right? Cause if I can get to my apartment, I'm probably gonna fuck, right? But rather than like, rather than do that, um, the attempting thing can be to ask a question like, hey, do you want to go to my place? And you ask a girl that, and it's really hard. Like if you give a woman, if you tell her like, let's go do this. And the only way out is confrontation. A lot of the times she won't do the confrontation because she just doesn't want to deal. She'll because women are usually conditioned to acquiesce and to be submissive and agreeable. So she'll just kind of like keep going along until you're, you've gotten her into a way more uncomfortable situation than you even realize. But sometimes asking somebody a question like, "Hey, do you want to come over to my apartment, or do you have like something going on in the morning?" If you like offer like a little out like that, if the woman feels like she has, you be like, "Okay, if I want to leave, I can say yes." As long as somebody always feels like they have the ability to step out, people tend to be way more comfortable because it alleviates a ton of pressure from the situation. So sorry, that's like. Like just a really roundabout way to say like anytime you're engaging with a woman and there have been times where like oh, I could tell like a woman is uncomfortable or whatever like be willing to just like back off and like take a break and be chill because I think like the best thing for a woman in any type of new especially sexual or any romantic situation she, you always want her to feel like if she says no or like even if she doesn't say no if she just feels uncomfortable that you can like put the brakes on and just like chill for a bit um, and I think if more people had that kind of mentality I think one you would end up having more sex like this sounds manipulative. I don't mean to make it sound like, but I don't think there's ever been a time where I've sensed a girl was like that. I was like, hey, let's just like take a break for a moment. Every single one of those situations that eventually resulted in us fucking because usually it's like, okay, I feel chill or whatever. Um, so one, it, it helps guys, I guess, get laid. But then two, it helps you avoid those like me too things because it's very, very, very easy to get a girl in a really compromised situation that she wouldn't be in if she could have made the choice right from the start. But you've kind of like cleverly navigated her there the entire way without even realizing you're doing it, you know? That was a lot it's of, interesting. Yeah. My mom gave me a really good piece of advice when I was a kid that was so unintuitive, but served me very well, which mm -hmm. she said, for a woman to have an orgasm, she has to trust you. And I remember being like, what does trust have to do with an orgasm? Like that was so foreign to me, mm -hmm. but that was the first time where I was like, whoa, then this is a very different experience for a woman than it is for a man. Mm -hmm. And because I got that advice before I started having sex, I brought that into the table where I was like, okay, okay. Like this is a totally different game, a totally different experience and may PS have led into the me showing up with flowers and poetry and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, maybe I went a little too soft. Um, but 
that that was a real key insight to your point about giving them an exit ramp, making mm-hmm. sure they feel safe all the time. That because that's ultimately that's what the trust means. The trust mm-hmm. means like if I'm uncomfortable, are you going to stop? Because it's fully once the girl's in your apartment, like whether she lives or dies, like her entire destiny, her fate is now in your hands as the guy. And for a lot of guys, like you don't even realize what the what that experience is like, you know? Yeah, no doubt. So, talk- and then also I'll, I'll, I'll do this. Cause I'm, I'm also bi too. Something that's like really funny that I've noticed in terms of hooking up with guys and girls. And I've, I've hooked up with way more girls and guys and all the girls I've hooked up with. I think there's been one that I can remember that like really pushed my boundary in a way where I'm like, we we're stopping. Like, we're not going to do this. Help me understand. How do you navigate an open marriage, which sounds difficult? Tenacious. Yeah. Um, I listen, here's what I think. I think all relationships are difficult to navigate. So yeah, but you dialed that shit to hard. Like if we're yeah, going to put my whole this in video is game hard, context, so, yeah. this is like, what's that game uh, that you just die every two seconds? Uh, Dark Souls. Dark Souls. Yes. Yeah. This is like Dark Souls on hard ranked. Like, yeah. Walk me through it. I think polyamorous people can get jealous when people are hooking up with people. Monogamous people get jealous when now, people are talking are to people. Are you polyamorous? meaning multiple like actual relationships or are you able to have short-term sexual encounters? Those Um, feel very It's really hard to like, it's hard to like label anything for my relationship. You don't have like specific rules? Yeah, we do, but they change (laughs) depending on how it feels what. Here's what I'll say like for me, and I think it's generally true of Melina. Um, Believe it or not, a whole bunch of one night stands are actually not that much fun. Like my, my top five best sexual partners in my life, not even remotely close to anything have been the five girls that I all dated long-term for a year or more. And two of them started off as basically like virgins and horrible sex. And by the end, it was like the, some of the best I've had in my life. So one night stands are not that much fun. Also, I kind of like to be friends with like the people that I like, I'm kind of a, I'm like a cuddly, like I like being close to people and everything. So the idea of like, you fuck somebody and like you leave. There was one girl I've hooked up with in my life who was like super anti-cuddler. We like finish and she like rolls over and they go to sleep. And I was like, well, this feels really weird. Um, so like generally there are going to be people that I'm friends with and then if we can fuck too. That's like, that's really fun and cool. Um, and I think that's kind of the types of sexual relationships that I like to explore more rather than just like I meet somebody hook up and then I maybe never see them again. So so the, the reason why I say this, because some people would say that that's not quite an open relationship because you're doing like romantic or friendship things with people. But then other people would say that's not really polyamorous because you're not like dating multiple people. Other people would say if you're friends with somebody, you fuck them, you're de facto dating them. So I don't know what it is. That's, it's whatever that is. It's interesting. So this might be my age showing, but um, how do you conceptualize then what marriage is if part of the marital component isn't that you're because like to to be honest i can understand swinging if the couple is together Mm -hmm. but it gets weirder for me if it's like literally two completely detached separate experiences okay um let's see if i can do this so there are firstly my wife is who i live with and my life is structured around her if I meet a girl I like in Seattle, I'm not going to move to Washington, right? Like my life is structured around like, what is my wife doing? Um, she's like the priority in my life. I'm not about to give half my money to a random girl I meet or whatever. But if my wife, I had to pay her Swedish taxes recently because she couldn't transfer money, right? This is stuff I'm not doing for a random fucking girl, okay? Um, so my wife is like my priority, number one. 
Um, number two, my wife should be the person that like I communicate the most with. So in terms of like friendship, romantic communication, connection, all of that, she's like the person that I connect the most with. And those are the things that like make her my wife. The fact that she's my priority, the fact that I hopefully, assuming everything's running well, I'm communicating with her, doing the most with her. And like the, the moments in time that we're sharing are like the most special that we have, hopefully with any other person. Um, the way that I view other people this probably speaks to some level of like selfishness that I have because I'm greedy for whatever the fuck I want or whatever. Um, it's really cool meeting new people. That's really fun for me. I like making new friends. I like talking to people that are interesting. Sex is really fun. It's really cool. It's a fun way to get to know somebody, be closer to somebody. And then like those like romantic sexual friendship moments, they're like these little special moments in time that you can carve out with a lot of different people that's like special and fun and unique all on their own. And to be able to explore that and have that with other people, for me, that's like super awesome. Like I love my wife. There are so many like fun romantic things that we've done together uh, more than any other individual. But there are also like a lot of, there are other cool people that I've met and it's like super fun to like share those moments in time with them as well. But it doesn't like replace the feelings I have for my wife. It's just like something separate. The way that I would describe it, nobody likes the analogy and I understand why, especially for like monogamous people. But like you can have like a lot of different friends. Having one friend doesn't take away from the time you spend with another. You can even have a best friend and have other friends and like still have like really special moments with all those people too. Mm. Why but, do people like that? Um, well, because then they say having a friend isn't the same as fucking somebody. Or are you saying your spouse True. is just your friend? It usually is where people go, but yeah. Interesting. That analogy works for me in some ways. It helps me understand how you see it. Mm-hmm. Um, now, when I think about, so are you, do you see yourself as married forever? Or is it that a marriage is, is a, it's a moment in time and I don't really think about the future. It's whatever. It'll yeah, do what it does. Too much money now. It has to be forever or somebody's dying. <laughs> okay. Yes. That's where we're, we're, one, we're married for life. One of us is. So um, no, I mean, like, yeah, I mean, it's kind of weird. Initially when we got married, it was just for the green card because, um, she lives in Sweden. Legitimately and just for the green card? Well, I mean, I want her to live with me. She's my wife. Right. So she lives in Sweden, in America. So she either gets to see me three months a year or we get married so we can live together like a couple that loves each other. So initially gotcha. when we you got, were already in love. Yeah, 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 yeah. But you actually got married. Yeah. So that we could like live got together. It. Right. Um, yep. But then after that, obviously your feelings continue to grow for each other. Um, and now I think the way that we approach our life, like the way that I've got everything structured is I hope we're together forever. That's like what I'm planning on. That's what she's planning on. Like, obviously sometimes people break up or divorces happen or whatever, but like, I don't have like an exit ramp in my mind right now for like, okay, well, if Melina doesn't work out, you know, fuck that. There's a Norwegian chick I can talk to or something, right? Like, that's not what I'm thinking. Yeah. Mm. Now, hopefully she's thinking the same with me. Although the rest of the community. <laughs> yeah, no, of course we do. We just want to like, uh, like, I think eventually we probably want to have kids, but mm-hmm. we, our relationship needs to stabilize a lot because there's a lot of things. We have a, we have a really big age gap. So there's a lot of things that she's growing and learning. And there's a lot of things that I'm still like growing and learning. Um, How old are you? you're pretty young. I'm 34. How old is she? 24. I guess at that age. Yeah. yeah. Fair. Um, okay. So then walk me through jealousy seems like the most obvious thing that you have to contend with. Um, Ten, okay, I don't like to dive too much into this because it gets into weird asymmetries. For whatever reason, I don't know why, and it might be because of like my independence growing up, I am very, very rarely, if ever, a jealous person. It's just not something I tend to care about that much. Um, there are so many things in my life that I can like pour my time into that like if my like if my partner wants to go off and hang out with somebody else or fuck somebody else, do whatever, 
she wants to do, like I can stream an infinite amount of time. There's an infinite amount of things I got work on. There are other people that I can talk to. Um, I, for me, at the end of the day, like I would be sad if she was like, I don't love you anymore. I'm leaving. Like that would be sad to me. But as long as I feel like she loves me, and at the end of the day, we get to hang out with each other and chill and you know be together and do things. Like if she wants to hang out with other people in the meantime, like that doesn't bother me. I guess. Yeah. I'm but, sure that like theoretically, I'll say that. But I'm sure theoretically there could be things that would bother me. Like if she fucked somebody and came back. And she was like, oof, like riding you doesn't feel as good because the last guy had like a, you know, 15 inch big white dick. And now I've got your, you know, I'm like, okay, well, fuck me. I'm sure there are some things that like could bother me, but with the way that it plays out right now, like, no, I think we're cool. That was literally going to be the question that I asked. Would it bother you if you knew she was having sex with somebody that she thought was better than you? The... I'm like pretty competitive by nature. So like if people are like having good- You're gonna find a way. Yeah, because I mean like there'll be times we talk where like, oh, you hooked up with a guy, like what did he do that you really liked? Or like what was like really fun for you? Or like what's something that, you know, like ideally assuming our relationship is healthy and everything's working, like those are the types of conversations we should be having to like, yeah, because you should, given the opportunity to be with a person for a long time is like the biggest sexual advantage you could possibly have. And I feel like to monogamous people, like I always like flip it back and it's like, are you ever worried that show me a guy that makes her laugh more than you? or a guy that she thinks is like, you know, looks better than you. Like those people exist out there. I'm probably not the best person for my partner. There's probably some guy out there that's better than me at StarCraft, funnier than me, hard to imagine, I know, uh, more handsome, more whatever. Like that guy's probably out there, but we've got like a history together, time together, we've tested it and we're doing our best. So yeah, you, you've got like a, that time investment that you make is a skill that nobody else in the outside world can compete with, right? There might be other guys that are taller than me, more handsome than me, bigger dick, whatever, but none of them have spent four and a half years with my wife. I've only done that, right? So yeah, that's, I guess that's how I think about it. Mm. It's very interesting. So uh, your life, at least if I'm understanding you correctly, it seems clear that you believe your life is better living it that way. Do you think that your marriage would be stronger if you didn't? Um, I don't know. Sometimes I think my whole life would be better if I got in an accident, like chop my dick off. Um, cause I make Just a lot of bad it takes decisions. Too much energy, too much <laughs> your focus. I make dumb decisions sometimes. Um, would my, I don't know. My wife likes to mess around too with other people. Like it's fun for her. Um, I don't think I would ever do it one sided where like, I'm just at home and she's messing with other people. Like we'd always probably both be doing things. Um, I think with the lifestyle that we lead with the things that I like, with the things that she likes, it's probably better to do what we do now. I don't think a monogamous relationship would be better for our relationship. I don't think so. If it would, the only aspect that would make it better is probably her number one complaint. And the worst part about dating me is sometimes my time can be highly restrictive. So, and, and also the way that I spend time with people is really is different than the way that she spends time with people. So I've noticed in life, some people really like mundane time together. I love mundane time. I like cuddling with somebody in bed while we're both looking at our phones or working on someone in a laptop. Um, like little, like holding somebody's leg while you're driving. Like these types of things mean so, being jamming with somebody. These like mean a lot to me. So I can spend like a whole week with her doing that every single day. Uh, we've gymmed every day together. We've gone, we've gone out to like three or four meals, sleep together every night, blah, blah, blah. And by the end of the week, she'll be like, I haven't seen you for a minute. I haven't oh done anything. God. Yeah, uh, I know that drill. Yeah, and for her, she's thinking like in her mind, okay, we do these things all the time, but when you go hang out with another girl, you're not just spending Monday time, you're taking her out to dinner, you're like going on fun events, like you're doing things like, I wanna do those things. So for her, her special time is like really high quality time where we're doing like special exceptional things. So balancing that out for me is very difficult because she likes time a lot different than I do. So the only issues we run into is where like, if I'll see like another girl and we do like a fun special thing, just cause I only see him once or whatever, 
And then she's thinking like, okay, well, we don't do anything together. That's a conflict because in my mind, I'm like, motherfucker, I spent like a hundred hours with you last week. And in her mind, she's like, you didn't spend a single hour doing anything special with me. So that's like a yeah, way different yeah approach to. I know it well. My wife is my business partner. And for me, that is extraordinarily quality time. I mm-hmm. love building my business so much. It is my favorite game to play is mm-hmm. to see if I can build this thing. And to do it with her is the great joy of my life. And so I'm like, yeah, we spent whatever, 90 plus hours focused on the same thing this week, often in the same room, pushing Mm -hmm. the same thing. And for her, just that clock doesn't start. Yeah. And she, she likes the mundane stuff. So if I come and I work mm-hmm. next to her, so she's watching TV cause I work more than she does. So if she sits down to watch TV, she'll be like, ah, oh, do you mind like coming and sitting next to me while you work? And I, I get nothing out of that. I get no sense oh, of like, Oh, okay, I'm okay. with you. If we're not focused on the same thing, that doesn't give me the same thing that it does her, but it does her. So I'm like, okay, cool. Like mm-hmm. I'm, I'm completely absorbed in my own world. That's uh, that's very, very interesting. How do you deal? You're so open about this. How do you deal with the internet pushback? When people want to do an ad hominem attack against you, they pull out what is one of the more sort of just for the average guy, the most scathing thing that they can the throw at thing. you. Yeah, that and they'll say horrible things about your wife. Yeah. And I haven't seen, I haven't seen enough of your content to know if you never do. I've never seen you even respond to it. Um, sometimes I'll fight with people. It's fun. Um, this is, this just comes from my background as being like very, very, very independent. Internet stuff doesn't hit me on like a very personal level. Like I'll get upset if people are saying things that are like wrong about me or if they're making like dumb arguments or whatever. But I figured this out like really early on in streaming. Like I have to live with myself 24 seven and it's my life i will never let the fucking internet dictate my life to me like there have been times where i dated a girl that my whole stream hated and like it was like why are you fucking with this chick well like, because well, i'm dating her not you motherfucker <laughs> i don't care if you don't like my fucking girlfriend that's good for you guys complain all you want she's the one that i fucking live with fuck you but but i, I understand i understand it um it is exceptionally rare that a person so something that i do that i think is exceptionally rare is when i live my life I genuinely, I have like an internal um, schema that I like hold things to, to see like, do I want to do this or do I not want to do this? And I'm genuinely capable of interpreting all of those things for myself. I think for a lot of people, I think the interpretations are done on a social level. Uh, There's like this phenomenon I describe sometimes where like I'll ask somebody, I'll like ask a guy like, would you ever wear like a pink dress? And the response would be like, it's like this kind of thing where I feel like they're kind of like, what am I supposed to say? And then they'll give me the answer that like closely resembles like the group that they're in rather than like, not to say that they should want to wear a pink dress or not. I wouldn't want to, but like, I would think about it. Like, I don't think I want to do this. Right. But I don't feel like a pressure for other people to do it. I think for a lot of people, they feel a pressure to live a certain way. And part of feeling that pressure also requires you to reinforce that pressure. So that's where a lot of the comments come from. Like for a lot of people, because there's a lot of cognitive dissonance there too. If you see my lifestyle, it is impossible that somebody like me could ever be. Because for me to be able to live my life in that style and to be happy with it would require for them to reorganize their whole worldview. So in order to resolve, because we all work, we always work to resolve cognitive dissonance. In order to make my lifestyle make sense, either they have to reform how they view the world and they have to acknowledge maybe there are a lot of other types of ways to be happy, or I'm just a cuck who's hardcore coping and I cry to myself to sleep every night. And that's probably way more likely. So they just go with that basically. Yeah. So I feel like having the understanding of like where they come from mentally, like I get it, um, helps me to like not care as much. But then again, like I said, like at the end of the day, this is my life. Like why the fuck would I let strangers online dictate to me how I live, you know? 
You guys know I have a very strict diet that I stick to, except for very special occasions. And I do that so that I can bring my best every day to what I'm doing. And a big part of that strict diet is high quality animal protein and my go-to source of trustworthy meats and seafoods with no added hormones or antibiotics ever is ButcherBox. ButcherBox is a premium meat subscription service that delivers 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork raised crate-free, and wild-caught seafood all directly to your door. I cannot recommend ButcherBox enough. When you eat ButcherBox, you are giving your body the best possible building blocks to work with so you can reach your full potential. You've got to take care of yourself at a cellular level if you want to hit your peak consistently. So ButcherBox is the key. Sign up at butcherbox.com impact and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off, and that means you can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com impact and use code impact to choose your free-for-a-year offer plus get $20 off your first order. If getting your hands dirty and taking good care of your car or cars is a passion of yours, then eBay Motors is here for the ride because I'm sure you remember when you first saw the potential in that beauty. And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly with ebay motors brake kits led headlights exhaust kits turbochargers bumpers whatever your baby needs ebay motors has it and with ebay guaranteed fit it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time or your money back plus at these prices you're burning rubber not cash keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com eligible items only exclusions apply it's Tom Bilyeu here, and if you are addicted to the relentless pursuit of greatness, then I've got something special for you guys. The Motivation Daily Podcast by Motiversity. It's your daily fix of motivation, inspiration, and wisdom featuring the best speeches and speakers on the planet. We cover it all. Life, business, relationships, discipline, purpose, mental health, sports, studying, focus, you name it. With exclusive speeches from heavy hitters like Coach Payne, Billy Allsbrooks, Marcus Taylor, Dr. Jessica Houston, Walter Bond, and more. If you're ready to take control, level up, or just crush your day, then Motivation Daily Podcast is your secret weapon. Search for the Motivation Daily Podcast and follow wherever you listen to amazing podcasts. It's very interesting to me. So I... Um when I'm very good at controlling my emotions, but I definitely have a negative response mm-hmm. to things. If I think the way that people come after you and the way that you're just like water off a duck's back, I would not enjoy that. Like that would really, which is super, that's super like 99% of people. That's 99% of talent of, of like online influencers. That's super, super normal. Yeah. Some people feel really bad about that, but I, if I'm ever talking to a friend that's doing that, I always say like, it is totally normal to feel this way. Like it's fine. Like, everybody deals with this because every because people don't talk about it that much sometimes so people start to deal with and they feel really bad about it and you have to remind them like this is super normal like humans are social creatures it would be bad if you like didn't feel that pressure from outside people because that's probably how a lot of society regulates itself right it's some amount of like external pressure affecting you what what is your response to negative emotion 
I've heard you say that you actually like the stress and you like it when people are coming after you and you're playing. I mean, there was one time you said that like someone's trying to come after me and like ruin my career or whatever. You're like, I like that and having to figure it out. And I was like, God, that did not, that doesn't sound fun. Um, or in that moment, do you think that the sort of dial of intensity on that feeling is low? There is a, um, I'll call this like righteous fury or righteous anger. Um, a more boring way to define this is, um, fuck, there's two words for this. One is eustress and one is distress. distress. Yeah. Um, most of the time when we talk about stress and it being negative, what we're really talking about is distress. And being distressed means that you're in an area where you are very aggravated by the environmental circumstances and you don't have the tools to deal with it. It's a sense of hopelessness. It's a sense of fear. It's a sense of anxiety. It just destroys you. It's bad for you physiologically. It's just horrible. Um, but then there's this concept called eustress where you're being actively challenged by your environment and there's a lot of external factors stressing you, but you do have the tool set to deal with it. And for whatever reason, I've always felt like I've got the tool set to deal with things. Like if something bad happens, there have been some times where like a catastrophic thing will happen and I need to take a day to be like, My, I know I'm mentally fucked today. But then the next day it's like, okay, well, I'm not starting from carpet cleaning. I've got like a whole bunch of shit going for me now. So what do I have going for me? Where, where can I go from here? What do I need to do? I had this moment I got fucking banned from Twitch when I got departed from Twitch. These were two like huge moments for me because I'm like, I've streamed this platform for like 11 years. What the fuck? Um, but yeah, you, 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 there's time continues to move in one direction and whether or not you want to move along with it is ultimately up to you. So for whatever reason, I have a really good adaptive mindset of like, I have to work and figure out what I need to do next. So that like tends to keep most of the stress at bay. There's that. Um, there's two other big things. The second thing is that a lot of my life, I have like three secrets. Okay. Other than that, like my whole life is basically open for the internet to scrutinize. So it's very hard for people generally to get any kind of like leverage or blackmail on me. Like more often than not, if somebody accuses me of impropriety, I'm like, okay, well, let's just leak all of our logs and you can tell me like, we'll let the people decide. Right. I might be cringe sometimes, but I'm not like a rapist or I'm not like abusive. I'm not doing anything like crazy or weird or whatever. Um, so that helps a lot. Um, and that like a lot of my life is public. And then the third thing kind of going along with the end of that seventh, uh, the second thing, I think I'm generally like a pretty good person. Like I've, I haven't really fucked anybody over <clears throat> the, um, I pay my employees well. I've never scammed anybody. I've never done anything. Like I've just never done anything like that bad. So usually when people are gunning for me, it's on some like total bullshit rumor stuff. And I know that as long as I put together good enough evidence, if I navigate it appropriately, if I control my emotional state, and if I present a compelling case to the public, I'll always come out on top because I'm like conducting myself in a decent way. So that those are like the three big things I think that like kind of helped me navigate it all. I know at one point you had a bad breakup or something and she leaked uh, very sensitive photos. First of, of all, certain... that was not a breakup. It was a girl that I wasn't dating. I was a massive fucking dick. So I probably somewhat deserved it. Maybe not to that extent, but basically it was a girl and I that used to sleep together. Um, and we were friends too. I, I should say that we were friends first. So we also slept together. But um, I was sharing pictures of her in a group of a couple friends or whatever we were talking and we were making jokes about like the way that her face looked, which was really horrible. I shouldn't have done it. Really shitty. But um, apparently one of the people in that group knew her they told her and she had worked as an assistant for me and she found out how to get on my Twitter and she started posting pictures of me. I remember I was in the middle, fuck me. I'm in the middle of, um, do you, do you know what MLG is? Major League Gaming. I'm in the middle of this fucking huge audience. Okay. I'm sitting near the front. Um, cause I'm a big streamer I'm for whatever. And, um, this guy in front of me, Jeff Robinson, I remember, um, he takes his phone out and he turns around and he's like, Hey dude, nice dick. And I was like, what? And then I look and he's showing me my Twitter with that horrible fucking, and I like get up and I'm like, holy shit. And it was like a pretty stressful day. 
I would imagine. <laughs> now, what was your response? How did you bounce back from that? Um, well, my initial response was unhinged. I told her, I'm going to contact your school. I'm going to get you kicked out. I'm going to destroy your fucking life, you horrible fucking pieces of shit, blah, blah, that blah. That is one reaction. Um, that was that. The day after, uh, I was streaming again. This is something that I figured out really early on, okay? People, this is a bullshit rule I made up. People only know you for your last three videos, okay? If you do something, if you fuck up, you do something stupid or whatever, you have to keep making content and you have to keep make, moving forward. So I'm pretty sure I was streaming the next day. A lot of people were making fun of me, like saying dumb shit or blah, blah, blah. I kind of like joked around with it. By day two, it had dropped by like 90%. And by three, there were just like a few people left saying anything. Something that I noticed that happens if you're a content creator, um, actually it's probably true of life in general. If anything really big happens, Take the appropriate time you need to process it or figure it out, but oh my God, don't stop moving. You have to keep moving forward. I know so many content creators that went through a big piece of drama and they were like, I have to take like a month off. And I'm like, take a day off, don't take a month off. Because what happens is, is you stop. That's the last thing people remember about you. You get out of the swing of doing content. The last thing people remember you is really horrible. When you come back, two things are gonna be true. One, your initial audience is going to be way smaller because now people are forgetting about you. And two, everybody's going to bring up that last thing. So now you start your stream again. The horrible thing that made you quit is back with one fifth the audience size. And you're like, fuck it, I'm going to take another one. And then you're done. I've known so, I've known like five or six different content creators that like had a big drama and this was their exit. They, they never came back from it. And I'm like, you just have to keep streaming. It sucks. It'll be awkward. Keep streaming, keep making videos, push through it and you'll come out the other side usually okay. Assuming you didn't like rape or murder somebody, right? Yeah. Walk me through how like, as I was researching you, uh, I started thinking, mm, I'm not sure I'd be good in the format of a stream. Like you are a, you're playing games at the same time, which I actually don't understand how you do. Uh, cause we, we set up a Twitch channel. I was literally, we got all of it set up. I was ready to go. I was about to sit down and play. And I was like, I can't talk while I'm playing. This is not going to be good content. I'm either going to look so dumb playing the game that people are like, this guy is a loser. Uh, or I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to be completely sucked into the game. Um, but also you're having to think on your feet so much for so long. There's no sense of like, even the part who knows if, if we'll leave it in, uh, probably, but like, I have the option to cut out some of your earlier comments if we think they're too hardcore, right? Sure. You don't get to do that on stream. So how do you deal with years and years and years of that, knowing that you're going to evolve as a person? I just, my, my current strategy now is, it's funny, I did this several times yesterday. Um, I want to talk about the things that I feel, the ideas that I have, like those subjects, let's talk about them. As soon as people start accusing me of shit, I'll just like, yeah, and. Um, so like if somebody says like, I think you said this thing, like I actually think you're pretty racist. Um, like, how do you feel about that? I'm like, I, yeah, I am racist. Like, what do you want to talk about? Yeah, I am misogynistic. What do you want to talk about? Like, I, 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 don't, I don't ever engage in conversations like, are you racist or are you misogynistic? Or are you? I just don't do it anymore. It's boring to me. It's stupid. It's usually based off of like one tweet or one thing. If you think I'm racist or misogynistic, that's fine. But like, let's just talk about like whatever. Like, let's say I am, let's say I'm not. It's not going to change the conversation going forward um so to some extent like yeah i just does it said another way is that um look at me by the ideas that i present here and now uh, well oh if you're talking about like yeah i mean like sometimes my positions on things will update like i'll change my stance on some things but then i'll just say that too i have no problem like somebody like i've changed my mind a lot on deplatforming, for instance and people sometimes will come in it's like you're a total hypocrite you said this in 2017 and i'm like am i a hypocrite because i changed my fucking mind like how old are you 25 do you think everything you thought when you were 15 do you are you a hypocrite like what a stupid thing to there's a 
I don't remember, it was a Hemingway quote or something, but it's like when um, when the facts change, I change my mind, what do you do, sir? Or when I learn something new, I change my right? Yeah, there are going to be things that I don't believe anymore, but um, usually I can tell immediately there are some people I talk to that are really trying to have a conversation, and there are other people I talk to that are not. So some people will say things like, hey, in 2018, 2019, you said this, do you still think this anymore, or do you still believe this, or why or why not? Like, okay, cool, that's an interesting conversation. Other times, people say like, how do you feel about this? And I'll be like, oh, like, I think this thing. And they're like, really? Because in 2016, you said that. And it's like, yeah, I probably felt differently back then. Okay, well, no. What do you mean? You che- are you just like flip-flopping? Or whatever. It's like, no, like whatever, right? You can tell like really quickly if somebody's genuinely interested in what you're saying versus they're just trying to like nail you to the wall on gotchas or whatever. Now, are you at all worried about the Rogan N-word supercut happening to you? Like as you get bigger, which I have a feeling you will, uh, you've been at it so long, you're good at it, especially as 2024 comes, you'll be like the political guy in that arena that people are going to go to, go to, go to. Do you have a sense of the sort of Damocles over your head that I am going to have to go through this at some point? I, I don't care. Like I said, I, I try to like short circuit or diffuse a lot of these conversations where like if somebody says something, I'll just like, yeah, this is what I think about it. Like if you're going to talk about your can or you talk about something different. I think that only because I'm independent from a lot of sponsors. I don't rely on sponsorships or teams, so I don't have to worry about that. And because I'm not bending the rules in a way that's going to get me kicked off a platform. Like, I'm not like, like I might have stances on like offensive language or slurs, but I'm not saying them on YouTube, right? So I don't think I'm going to get banned for something like that. But I find humans are very reflexive in nature for how they deal with people. I don't know if you've noticed this, um, for small children, this is something I learned a long time ago. My mom did daycare and I see it with my kid. Um, when a kid is like running around, if they like bump their head on something and they fall to the ground, the first thing they do is they like look to an adult for a reaction. Right. And if you've got like the stereotypical mom, that's like, Oh, my baby, the kid is going to be crying. But like, if you walk up to the kid and it's like, you're fine, get up and like, do whatever. Like they'll whine for like two seconds and then they walk off and they do whatever. Um, if somebody comes up to me and they're like, Hey, I've got this clip back in 2019. I think you're racist. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Listen, listen, I swear to God, like, hold on. Like the way that this interview, like if you give them the power, then they're going to take it and they're going to ride on that high horse and you're going to empower them to do those things. Um, whereas like I said before, I was like, okay, like maybe I am. Let's talk about something that you actually want to talk about. Um, my, my biggest complaint when it comes to like cancel culture and stuff is people give way too much power to the people that are trying to cancel people. But I recognize, I say that from a position of luxury because I'm not part of an organization or part of something that could come down and punish me if I were to like give an outlandish view. Like I might have a different perspective on this if I was like the CEO of like Pepsi or something else, you know, like I, now I'm representing a lot of other people when I talk. Uh, so I wanted to ask the Rogan thing. When mm-hmm. that all popped off, what did you think? Did he, as somebody who does have sponsors, you think he handled it well? Should he have- Did he do anything about it or did he just keep trucking? As far as I know, he made an apology. I didn't follow oh. it super closely to be I don't honest. think you should make it. He probably had to, but I don't know. I just, like, I I really don't like Joe Rogan because of all of the, like, the the what I would say, like the misinformation that he um, hosts, especially related to vaccines and stuff. A lot of that triggers me. But um, I don't think Joe Rogan is racist. I've like, I've never in my life gotten the vibe that he's racist. And I don't like the hunting for like people's bigotry to like try to figure out like, did they say this word or blah, blah, blah. And I think I watched that clip compilation. It was a long time ago at this point. It was a while ago now, but I don't remember seeing it. It was like, Ooh, that guy's really racist. It's just like dumb. So yeah, I don't know. The, The thing that sucks about apologizing. And again, with Rogan, it's different because he's got like a bunch of employees that depend on him and sponsor deals and stuff. Maybe he needed to, but man, by apologizing, you give so much more power to that group of people where it's like, yeah, now you've made him that much more emboldened for the next person. Like, oops, sorry for the next person that they go after. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, what, why do you dislike Rogan so much? 
There's something my mom told me when I was in high school, and it was don't ever let your mind be so open that your brain falls out of it. And sometimes I feel like with Rogan, he has this tendency to agree with anybody that's on his show or he gives a platform a lot to him. And one of the big, I shouldn't say I hate Rogan. I don't hate Rogan. He seems like a cool guy, actually. Most of his shows are pretty funny. The only issue that I have is right now there's a huge surge of like anti-establishment sentiment. And as soon as somebody's willing to come on and say like, oh yeah, like the vaccines are fake. They're causing like mushrooms to grow in your body and like the diet suddenly documenting blah, blah, blah. And it's like, if you want to have them, that's fine. But like, at least like provide like some kind of like pushback, like bring somebody on at the same time, or at least like have a real person on afterwards. Like it seems like 80% of the people that come on are like denying all this like pretty obvious medical shit. And that triggers me because Joe Rogan is so popular. I know that I need to watch his episodes because I'm going to be arguing with 50 different people that are going to be echoing those same arguments later. So it's just, that's frustrating for me to deal with, I guess. I also, I don't know where you stand on vaccine or anything. So maybe you agree with them completely, but yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know where I stand on the vaccine. I think that you really have to look at it. So uh, I'm not going to make a decision unless I really like dig into it. So I got vaccinated. Um, and so I'm, I think vaccinations on the whole are a miracle, uh, but I have no idea. I haven't looked at any of the data from the, the recent spout. So sure. yeah, I, I am definitely, I, I, the way that I see it, a lot of people will say, Tom, you never have to worry as long as you only talk about things that you know about. And I have taken the exact opposite approach. I am more than happy to talk about things that I know nothing about, Okay, but I'm just going to walk you through how I think about it. So the way that I would think about the vaccine is look at the data, right? So I don't, I think it is a huge problem that we face as a society that right now people think tribally and they allow themselves to, I have a, I have a growing hypothesis about this. In fact, uh, one of the things I found most interesting about you is you don't seem to allow yourself to be ideologically captured by your own mind, by your own beliefs, by your opposition, your, by being the opposite of them. Yeah. Yeah. Like none of it, uh, including your own audience, which is um, we've all seen it happen where people get audience capture uh, that can be a very strong gravitational pull. So I get it. Um, so what I do is say, okay, there, there is a path to understanding what this is, and I'm going to walk down that path. And I don't care what the answer is. It's not that I don't care. What I care about is the truth. I care deeply about identifying the truth. Now, whatever the truth is, the truth is. And so unless it's something that we can change, then I just want to know what, what are the facts so that I can adjust accordingly. And then if I find, okay, I know where we are today and it's something that's malleable, again, I still needed to know the truth. And so this is where I get, I get heartbroken for people that don't want to engage with the truth. So there's a guy, I, I'm going to make a prediction about you. I don't think you'll like this guy, but I'll be very interested to see. Uh -oh. if I'm mismapping your worldview. Uh, an economist named Thomas Sowell, Oh, geez. And fan, I assume you're not a fan. <laughs> not too much. Yeah. But so, I, I, he's a smart guy. Yeah. Yeah. I think he's brilliant. Is he right about everything? Nobody's going to be. I haven't read enough of his stuff to be, to know where the edges are, mm -hmm. but he gave me a quote that is so powerful that I think about him all the time. And the quote was the last 30 years have been marked by exchanging what sounds good, exchanging what worked for what sounds good. And I was like, it, it suddenly made so many things click into place. There's two things that helped me navigate um, the times that we're living in. So I've been in LA now for almost 30 years. I have watched it change, yeah. man, and not for the better. And so I'm often asking like, what happened? And I, I really think it is, very well-intentioned people. There's two things. I'll finish that statement. Well-intentioned people 
with terrible policies that they are not checking against reality, saying, hey, here's the predicted outcome. Did we get it? No, we didn't. Then we have to change. Was it was it San Francisco recently that had the $10,000? I didn't hear about this. Oh, fuck. What was, um, it was either, it was either San Francisco or LA where they wanted to make things to make women feel safe and also to give shade in the sun. So it's like a steel pole that comes up and it's got a cover and a light and these installations cost like $10,000 each. And I think everybody was just like, it might've even been like San Jose. So I'm sorry, but there was just another example of like, yeah. yeah. Right idea. Make them actually be safe would be amazing. Possibly wrong execution. Uh, so that is the first side of that equation. And then the second side of the equation is that you um, need to make sure that you're in that loop of does this thing actually work? And so often people are not willing to look at that. And I haven't entirely figured out why that is true. Okay, I, maybe I can give you an idea. I'm, this is, it's interesting to say this. So I have a saying that encapsulates both of these points. When I'm telling people to think about policy is I try to tell people, stop getting attached to the process. You have to be attached to the outcome. And I notice that what a lot of people do is they will tie an outcome together with a process and that process becomes unassailable because it is interpreted as attacking the outcome. So I can give a really good example. I don't know how you feel about any of these policies, so maybe you'll disagree on the merits, but- I literally but yeah. only care about the truth. Okay, sure. Well, then yeah, everything I say is right. No, I'm just kidding. Um, the, there is only one way to deal with housing, okay? And it's to zone for more housing. Everything else sucks shit, okay? Just, I'll just say that much. One of the ways that we combat housing issues is rent control. Rent control can temporarily alleviate the burden for some renters. It hurts new renters. It hurts development. It's not a good policy, right? Um, in my opinion, and I think economically, I think there's a lot of research on this. But the outcome we're looking for is more housing for people, okay? Rent control is one way to effect that outcome. But if it doesn't work, then you toss it. But what a lot of people do in their mind is they'll take that rent control and that becomes inexorably linked to reducing homelessness or helping people find more affordable homes. So when I come out and I say, hey, uh, I don't think rent control is a good idea. In their mind, what they hear is you don't want affordable housing people. And then they're attacking you based on that outcome because they can't separate that from any of the processes. The inability to separate those two things also hurts people to critically evaluate the effectiveness of any given process because the thing that happens is, and this is important to know too, those outcomes are normative. They're moral in nature. Wanting to have less homeless people, wanting to have people with healthcare, these are moral claims that we're making, that we ought to be doing these things, which is good. The processes are not moral. There's nothing moral or immoral about capitalism or socialism or, or um, single-payer healthcare or any of these things. The, the morality part will come at the end based on who's affected and how they end up playing out in the real world. But people have such an impossible time disentangling those two things that anytime you start arguing against a given process because you don't think it's effective, they're just fighting you because they think you disagree with the outcome. I noticed for a lot of conservatives and liberals that fight with each other, they're fighting because they're tying the outcome to the process. Um, earlier in the show, you had said something where it's like, I think that liberals generally believe in like compassion and kindness or whatever. And conservatives generally believe in like individualism and pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It was funny that you said that because in my opinion, I think that both sides actually care about being compassionate towards people, 
but that's their, that's kind of like their, their drive. And then like the outcome is helping more people, but the processes are way different for both to a conservative compassion is I go to my church. I tithe my income. I donate to charities that help the people that I want to be helped that I know will help them. And I think they can do that better than the government. And at the end of the day, the, the responsibility of my immediate community, my friends, my family, my neighbors, it starts and it stops with me. That's what a small town conservative thinks. There's nothing compassionate about the federal government stealing money from people in San Francisco to give food stamps to a homeless guy in my town that came from the East Coast. That's in their mind what they're thinking, right? So they have the compassion. Um, the process is way, way, way different. And then liberals, in their mind, they're thinking like, okay, it's cool that you donate money to your church, but you don't know the homeless guy down the street. Nobody's fucking helping him. Donate all the money you want. It's not to get this guy treatment for his schizophrenia, right? At the end of the day, there are some problems that only the government can solve, okay? There's no such thing as like the Catholic church socialized healthcare system that's giving, you know, type one diabetic kids treatment. You have to go to the medical system for that. So the government has to be involved in some of these things. So th this is a thing where you've got two different processes, but when conservatives and liberals attack each other, they don't say, hey, socialized healthcare, uh, I don't think that's an effective policy. The liberal doesn't say, hey, caring about your community and just an individual, that's not effective. Instead, what both sides are saying is you hate America. You don't have compassion. You're not kind towards anybody. You're just trying to do like these evil things because they can't separate the process from the outcome, I think. I think that's really insightful uh, and is exactly the way that I think we have to move forward. So when I think about politics and I think about the government, I've traditionally not been involved at all. And until uh, recent events, I always said, if just an entrepreneur would run, would run for president, like they know how to run companies and they'll understand. <laughs> oh, no. So our, our first go round did not work out quite the way that I had hoped. Uh, but You know what? I'm real quick on that. Yeah. I think it would have. I am fully convinced that I, Trump must have lucked into a lot of shit. I don't know if you can luck into being a billionaire, but he's so fucking ineffective at everything. I think that a good business leader, because like if you think about like a good business leader, like there are traits of a good business leader that Trump did not have. One of the aspects of being a CEO or being, I know this from being a supervisor, okay? If I'm a supervisor in a restaurant and my manager or VP of food and beverages when it comes walking by and they say, hey, your tables are dirty, I am never saying, oh, I had two employees slacking off because it starts and stops with me. I'm the supervisor. They're my responsibility. I get paid the money to manage them. I can't fucking blame an employee when a, when somebody else comes by a manager and asks me what's going on. But for Trump, you're supposed to be the CEO of a company. The brand starts and stops with you. You can tank a whole business stock with one tweet. You can't be passing the buck to every other person if you want to run the country like a business because ultimately in the day, being a CEO means being accountable and he had no accountability. I'm sorry, just that's like a thing where people, because people will say like business leader can't run the country because of Trump. It's like, maybe they could. Trump just didn't run it like a business leader. He ran it like a like a monarch, <laughs> but that's, sorry. Yeah. yeah, the thing that I really want to see people do, whoever it is, is, is understand that every idea that you have process is, it's a test. And you're going to try it and you're going to see if it works. And if it does, then you're going to do it more. And if it doesn't, then you're going to change. And that's why I think everything really starts with the North Star. And I feel like political debate should always be arguing about what are we trying to accomplish? Let's get it down in a single sentence. Don't, don't, get, don't uh, obfuscate things with fancy language. Just in a single sentence, what are we trying to accomplish? Okay, cool. So now if we can agree on that, fine, fair. If left and right are really just debating about the method by which we get there, we're just going to try something. And if it works, like we... And this is physics of progress. I mentioned that earlier. So physics of progress, it, it is a um, set of steps and they are very easy to run. It's the scientific method recontextualized for business is where I thought of this. So you have a hypothesis. 
we would need to do this. It's just your best guess. You don't know. You have to try it first, but you have a hypothesis. Hopefully it's as informed as possible about what you would have to do to overcome the obstacle that stands between you and your goal. So you know your goal, you know the obstacle, you have a hypothesis on how you overcome that obstacle. You turn that hypothesis into a a test, a thing you can do, but you have to have a metric that you say, I'm expecting when I do this test to get this exact outcome. And if I don't make meaningful progress towards that outcome, this test was a failure. And so then you try it and you say, okay, cool. We have new data. And now the question is, do we make enough progress that it's worth running that test again, but improved? Or do we realize, uh, like just all together, this is not the right way to go about it. Now, the more that we can steer by empirical data, the better off we are. But it feels like people are going way out of their way to make things more complicated, to silence dissenting voices, et cetera, et cetera, which then ultimately creates a problem. Obviously, tribalism is a big part of this. It's a very complicated problem. But to me, the solution feels it 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 is physics. Like there is what I just walk people through. There is no way around. There is no way to be successful in anything, politics, helping the homeless, anything, anything, anything until you do that. Yeah. It's hard sometimes because sometimes it can be very bureaucratic. So getting certain changes passed or approved or like even measuring them can be difficult. Um, and that's part of the problem you have to solve. Yeah. But if we can't agree that that effectively the scientific method is the only way forward. Like if we can't agree on that, if there are some people that are like, no, no, no. The only thing that matters is it, the idea has to sound good. The idea has to make people feel better. It has to be inspiring. Okay, if I can't get you on to that the outcome is what matters, then yeah, we certainly if you're talking to me, we're never going to be able to make progress because that does not make sense to me. Sure. I feel like a lot of like, even when I think of like the most like capitalistic, like KPI driven, like what I think of like kind of tech world is like I'm thinking because you could be like so fluid and mobile with everything. I think it's funny that even in that world though, it seems like a lot of the decisions are, it's almost like dominoes. I think it was, I want to say Facebook started with the idea of an open office and like everybody copied them. And I think at the end of the day, the data came back and it just, it wasn't good to do. Do you know what I mean when I say open? The floor plan? Yes. Yeah. 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 That I, I think Facebook, it was either Facebook or Google was the first one to do it. And then every company started to like, they're doing it, we're doing it, they're doing it, we're doing it. And everybody followed suit. And I think I think the data has come out to show that like it doesn't make workers more it's productive. It's a cacophony it's not, of madness. Yeah, it absolutely doesn't. But everybody jumped on it just because they saw somebody do it. Um, and I feel like a lot of the tech world like that is sometimes. Do you remember uh, a long time ago when iPhone, uh, when Apple eliminated the headphone jack? Yes. I think it was either Galaxy or Samsung or it might have been Google, like was literally making ads, making fun of them, like miss your headphone jack. At least we still have it. Next generation, nobody has a headphone jack anymore, right? You saw recently um, Twitter in an incredibly unpopular move uh, was like, we're going to start charging a lot more for like API access and verification, right? Well, Facebook started charging for verification. Reddit is now having a huge issue where they're charging APIs. Sometimes I feel like everybody's like looking around. It's like, okay, I really want to do this thing, but I need this motherfucker to be the public fall guy for it first. And then we'll all do it immediately after. So, yeah. Yes. It, in fact, that brings me to the Overton window. One way I make sure my business is moving in the right direction is to ensure we are constantly becoming more efficient. Because in my experience, inefficiencies will eat away your profits and leave you with a dying business. But with the right technology, your business can get the insights it needs to become efficient and ultimately unstoppable. And that is why I recommend you check out NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all of it into one platform and one source of truth. 
You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors that are massively inefficient. Guys, inflation is no joke. So check out NetSuite and see how you can cut costs and boost performance at the same time, like the 37,000 companies that have already made the switch. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Do not wait. Head right now to netsuite.com slash theory. Again, that's netsuite.com slash theory. Get the information you need. Head to netsuite.com slash theory. So there are just things that you can do, like that the culture will accept. And this is this is part of the problem. There's enough malleability in culture and people that there will always be a temptation to try to get what you want by manipulating culture or, you know, trying to introduce, I mean, I'm doing this. If I'm completely honest, I'm actually waiting for somebody to, to point this out. So, uh, my whole thesis on impact theory was originally, I was just going to teach adults. Hey, uh, the only, cause I took myself from scrounging in my couch cushions to find enough change to put gas in my car to building and selling a company for a billion dollars, man. Like, and, and so when you take yourself from, I can't even put gas in my car to I'm fantastically wealthy. If you're wired like me, you start going, oh my God, like I'm not smarter than the next person, but I'm, I have a better frame of reference. I have a better belief system. I have a better value system that, that really works. And so I wanted to just start giving it to my employees. So my whole mantra was, I want you to work here. A, for the exact number of days that it's the most selfish thing that you could do. And then B, I want you to have the option to go work anywhere because I am I am pumping you so full of skills that you could go anywhere, but you believe I care more about your future than your own mother. That was like my whole thing. I used to say it to my team all the time. Like, I want you to be here because you know nobody's ever invested in you like this. And so we created this saying at the time, it was called Quest University. And I was like, think like this, act like this, read these books, do this. Like, it... it physics of progress. I can't say that that one thing will work, but if you get in that loop, like you really will be able to make progress. And 2% of them did something with it and 98% didn't. And so I was like, uh, okay, I'm a scale guy. So I was like, 98% are dead to me. I know too much now about human psychology. Uh, I'm going after kids. So 11 to 15. What a horrible quote. I'm sounds sorry. terrible. But <laughs> no, just the... <laughs> 11 to 15 became our sweet spot. Sure. And so I was like, okay, we're going to educate through entertainment. Because uh-huh. I'm like, don't try to change behavior, leverage it. Yeah. So I'm going to make video games, basically, that speak to 11 to 15 year olds. And I'm going to, instead of trying to make broccoli taste good, I'm going to make junk food good for you. And that's what we're doing. And so it's like, the the sort of scary part is, that really does work. The bad news is, like, if I were doing that for evil intent, whoa. like mobile games. <laughs> yes, I guess that's one way to look yeah. at it. But like, so our whole thing, the only reason that we exist is to empower people. But it's one of those where there just is a truth that at a societal level, you really can manipulate things. So I bring that up because um, as these companies look to their left and look to their right, and one of them does it, they know you've now conditioned society and I can now pull the trigger on something like that. And that stuff works. And this is ultimately how, as a society, we begin moving. Yeah, that's cool. I don't think I have anything to add to that. But yeah, I mean, I yeah, it seems like a cool concept, a cool idea. What do you, um, uh, I'm trying to think because it harkens back to, I was educated a lot unintentionally through video games. I learned, I picked up so many random tidbits 
you mentioning earlier the idea that we have an organelle with its own genetic code. Like I know all about that because I played a game called Parasite Eve like growing up. Um, there's so many random things I picked up that yeah, video games can be instructive as long as they have the right information in them. Yeah. Talk to me about your ability to break down good ideas. I've said a couple of times, I think you think very clearly. You seem to have a, an actual like structure to how you break down ideas. Um, usually it's, uh, you keep calling it that North star thing. Um, for me, it usually it's, I've got like some kind of like internal, like guiding principles and everything will map onto that very easily. Usually, um, in my opinion, I think the hardest thing to do in life is to figure out like, what do you really want? What do you want to do? Like usually if I'm talking to a person, especially people that feel really uncertain about their future, usually what I try to hone in on is like, what would you enjoy doing? Like, what do you like? What makes you happy? Because, and then once you figured out, like, what do you want to do? What's your dream job? What do you want to do? The people think that questions given to them are so difficult to answer. Like, should I go to school here? Should I do this? Blah, blah, blah. If you ever get a question like that, that's difficult to answer. The reason why it's difficult to answer is usually because you don't have that internal question of like what you want to be, what you want to do figured out. You call it your North star because once you've truly figured out, like, listen, by the time I'm 30, I want to be a lawyer, doctor. I want to be an engineer. I want to be, uh, I want to be a manager of a franchise at McDonald's or whatever. Right. If you have that, then all of the other decisions in the interim usually become pretty easy for you because it's like, okay, um, I really want to be a lawyer by the time I'm 30. Um, at 22, uh, you know, I, I guess you can do pre-law or whatever for your undergrad or something. Um, if you have, uh, let's say like an opportunity comes up for you to help run the family business for like three or four years, um, and it might be like a decent chunk of change, or you could go to law school. If you really want to be a lawyer, and that's like something set in stone for you, even though you've got a nice opportunity that comes up with your uh, maybe family business, it's easier to say like, no, I don't want to, because I know in five years, this is where I want to be. I want to be doing the lawyer thing. So I have to say no to that. Usually a lot of the confusion about like opportunities that come up, usually it's because you don't really know where you want to be going long-term. And to try to navigate the world with no endpoint in mind is impossible, impossibly difficult because every single decision requires you to evaluate every single thing about your life again. Um, for me in politics and ideas, it's usually pretty similar. Somebody's like, oh, well, why do you support um, this particular thing? And I was like, I don't know. Well, let's boil it down to like its most fundamental aspect. I feel about this or that. And then we look at this or that. And then we, you know, look at this or that. And then you just go from there. If, say somebody, um, somebody asked me a question about like uh, single payer healthcare, right? For me, um, effective. So very fundamentally, two people come together, they make everybody happier than if they were apart, right? So fundamentally, we try to create a society that serves the needs of as many people as possible. If you're looking at single payer versus multi-payer, then all we have to do at the end of the day is let's look at countries that have this healthcare system, measure their healthcare outcomes. Let's look at countries of this healthcare system, measure their healthcare outcomes based on spending or whatever. We can find out like what's more effective. And then we move in that direction. Like that's how I navigate those conversations. Um, I'll never utter something like everybody is entitled to healthcare or everybody deserves like because I don't those are like platitudes they're meaningless right at the end of the day like you said we have to find out what works the best and then we employ that system and then you go from there so I think one of the big advantages is I stay away from normatively loading any process I'll never ever ever normatively load unless the thing is by default like in like if somebody says like we should make society better by murdering children it's like okay well that's not good but um yeah, generally, I, I stay away from normatively loading anything. I try to evaluate everything based on outcomes. And then once we have all that information, then the moral decision of like, well, what's better because it serves some moral or ethical end is usually where I'll go from there. Yeah. Mm. And how do you translate that into debate? So debating is something that um, you seem to have a unique gift for. It's 
it is not something that people are usually by default good at. Are there strategies that you use or is it all intuitive for you? Uh, no, there's tons of strategies. There's a lot of deliberate um, meditation on like uh, figuring out like what works and what doesn't work. Um, from, uh, from what perspective? What's going to capture the audience? What's going to... Super depends on the conversation. It super depends on who I'm talking to. There's so you'll like, research that person. Are you mapping like their cognitive biases or anything? I hate, I keep saying this, it super depends. Um, I'll give an example for um, their Rolo Tomasi red pill guy. And then mm. Michael Sartain, I think, or something. Uh, I don't remember the other guy's name, but I saw a part of this on Fresh and Fit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, saw um, part of that. I had two days to prepare for that debate. So I took two days off stream and I wrote up an outline for all of the data that I wanted. But at the very top of the outline, I very specifically had, these are my goals for the conversation. Um, and these are the strategies that I'm going to employ. Do you remember for what the goals were? Um, fuck, I have this outline on my phone somewhere. But um, I, I think it was something like, uh, my goal is to factually destroy um, whatever claims they're making. Um, my goal is to demonstrate to the audience that what I'm saying is correct. My goal is to specifically cite a source with like a name, publication, date, and everything, blah, blah, blah. And then like I had like for strategies, it was like remain calm the entire time, minimize movement of hands, don't ever raise voice. Um, things that I know like in these audiences, I, when I'm arguing people, I like to be bombastic, I like to shout and scream, like this is fun for me and this is more animated. But I know for like red pill audiences, they want to see you like communicate more like this and be really? calm. And so, yeah, I hate that. I hate it, but it's a more effective way of communicating with that audience because they respect a person that's capable of doing this more than somebody who's like fucking screaming. You because know it's saying? an emotional control thing? Uh, no, just because they're because they have a poor concept of what emotional control means. Interesting, but it's like it's like their idea is just like yeah, they want to they want to see like men debate like this where they're perfectly stoic and blah blah. So it's, yeah, but like that that was like so for an example for that debate, like I would try to be less animated than I would be. I try to like never interrupt. I try to be very calm and chill because I know that that plays well to that audience. Mm. Um, when I'm doing shows like Fresh and Fit, for instance, something that I've said a lot to people is if you want to convince people. Um, to change their ideas. If, if you're trying to argue against something they believe, it's really important that they view you as like a friendly, amicable person. You have to be somebody that is like cool to them. So when I'm on these shows, I make it a point to always be having fun. You're never going to see me on like, even in these really adversarial areas where the chat is like spamming horrible things about me. I'm never like on the show being like, I disagree with every single thing you're saying. I'm going to debate you on this thing. We're going to fight. Blah, blah, blah. Like I'll be like joking and laughing and like making fun or whatever. And I'll pick like, there'll be some points like, I want to fight on this point. I think you guys are super wrong on this. Let's go on this or whatever. And then I'll go back to kind of like laughing and joking. But in, in a fresh and fit episode, they might say a hundred things that I disagree with. Um, I'm only going to fight them on like five or 10 of them. And on everything else, I'm going to kind of like vibe with them and have fun and chill because it makes me look a lot more friendly to the audience. And if they see that I'm capable of like showing up and like having fun and being cool, maybe there are like some things where it's like, uh, I don't fully believe it, but at least I understand your point of view. And that's like the start for me. Yeah. Okay. So um, are you ultimately trying to win the debate with the person you're talking to, or are you very aware that ultimately you're talking to the audience? It's almost always talking to the audience. Um, depending on the debate, I'll explicitly say that. Like with the abortion debate yesterday, like I think I told the two ladies, like, let's be clear here. Um, oh, because one of the ladies is like, have you ever considered that you might be wrong? And I was like, let's be clear here. I'm an independent person on the internet who can think whatever I want. You two literally have like 1,500 member anti-abortion pro-life organizations. You guys are never changing your mind, no matter what I say. Um, but I'm I'm flexible to like agree with or disagree with whatever. Um, most people are too um, are too burdened with audience capture to ever truly change their mind on an issue. So I'm generally not. Maybe I can like at least slowly move them a little bit on some things. Uh, but overwhelmingly, I'm generally just communicating to their audience, my audience, and anybody that might stumble into the conversation from the outside. What's something you've changed your mind on? 
I've changed my mind on so many things. Um, deplatforming is something that I radically changed my mind my mind on. I used to think that there were certain ideas that were like kind of like so toxic to the public discourse that they just we shouldn't even talk about them because they just like infect people's minds. Um, but then I realized for a long time that I think the reason why they're so toxic and infectious is because the people marketing them have done a really good job at making them appear to be that way. And people on the left don't like spend any time marketing their ideas at all. They tell you like either believe us or you're a bigot and you're canceled. And it's like okay, so. Deplatforming is something I've changed my mind a lot on. Um, uh, Citizens United lobbying is something that I had a huge change on. Um, basically, like the the existence of like lobbying and super PACs and stuff. I used to be uh, seven years ago. I used to think that lobbying was the single most important issue in the United States, and that we had to get rid of it. Yeah, that we shouldn't have lobbying. And now when I look at how things work in the United States, I actually think our political system is really effective at representing the will of voters. I think the issue is, one, who's voting sometimes, um, and two, that the reason why the system appears so broken is because it's accurately reflecting where we are at as a country. That we just are divided. Yeah, people look at Congress, but Congress can't do anything where, you know, it's so partisan and divided amongst itself. And it's like, okay, well, in the real world, I think like 60% of Republicans still think the election was stolen. So it seems like Congress is actually what appears to be broken. It's actually mapping on really well to what the citizens think. We just, it's more apparent in Congress. Or, you know, people will say things like, you know, we're never going to get good police reform because it's too corrupt. And it's like, you're not getting good police reform because police are controlled by your um, mayors that are voted on in local elections that have a 22% voter turnout. And the only people voting in those elections are old, wealthy, white people that aren't getting pulled over for marijuana. Why the fuck would the mayor ever do anything about police reform when all of his voters only care about stuff that affects like older, you know, middle-class, wealthier people? Like, I think a lot of problems come with that, but that's something that I've like dramatically changed my mind on. Um, there have probably been a few things more, but like, yeah, those are three off the top of my head. And so when you're going through that process, are you, are you in, in a constant state of, I want to, I know that there is a flaw in my thinking. I just don't yet know where it is. And so whenever I encounter an idea, even if it runs up against something that I really believe, do you have an internal mechanism that trips? This is up, reevaluate this. Um, I'm, again, I'm not tied to any process. I just have like a core kind of belief system I have. And if somebody's capable of bringing up data or bringing up something to me and it causes like, I can't account for that, either I have to figure out a better argument against them or I just have to switch completely. I think on the Citizens United thing, I used to think like lobbying like destroys our system, blah, blah, blah. And I got into an argument with somebody and he asked me, he's like, can you think of, you keep saying that like lobbying destroys everything. Can you think of one policy that's truly popular with the American people that like lobbyists have shut down? And there are a couple things I can think of, but it's only things if you poll on them very simply. But when you get into the weeds, it gets more complicated. And then I started to realize, like, no, actually, I can't think of I can't think of anything. It seems like if the American people generally want something, generally, assuming there's broad support for it, it'll usually happen. And usually when people are saying, like, the government's corrupted, we all want this thing, but it's not happening, usually we don't all want that thing. We think we do. When you get into the weeds, the answers change a lot. A really good example is single-payer healthcare. When Bernie was pushing for it at its height, you could get, like, 75% of Americans would agree with the statement, the government should provide healthcare for everybody. And all the Bernie fans would say, look, there's a support for his policy right there. But if you polled do you think that the private government, or I'm sorry, do you think that the government should eliminate all private insurance and be the sole provider of medical insurance and healthcare? The support drops to 25%. Yeah. So that's like, so a lot, there are a lot of issues where people are like, oh, look, all of Americans want this. And it's like, 
I think when you really start asking, I don't think they would. Brexit is another really good example. Like 51% of people voted to Brexit, but then when it came time to figure out, well, what does that actually look like? Now you have a ton of people like, fuck, maybe we didn't all agree on that. So it's like really hard to figure out what we even wanted to do from this point. Yeah. Yeah. That is uh, creating a good map of the world is something that is incredibly important. Being able to be flexible is important. Something that, that I think people really struggle with is uh, what I'll call a heuristic versus a rubric. So it is very hard to hold nuanced opinions in your head, like what you just went through where, Hey, at one level, it seems like we all agree, but if you go two levels down, we actually don't agree. It's, it's just hard. Like that's already a hard thing. The amount of time and attention it would take to drill into the issue to get to that point is going to be, most people are not going to do that. And so I think people are looking for a heuristic. So they want to rule the thumb that rule of thumb tends to be either somebody that I listen to on the internet thinks this way. And so I trust them. And so I'm in a wholesale buy off or, uh, I'm on the left or the right. And so what's the position, right? And so I don't have to think through this on my own and I'm just going to take that wholesale. Um, that feels like it, it creates movements that are impossible to back out of, like they are just going to happen. Uh And so it feels a little bit to me like when a car flips over the edge of a hill, it's like, there's no stopping it until it runs out of momentum and it's smashed into a million little pieces and it's at the bottom. There is no slowing it down. And so I'm curious, do you think given that you were saying that the division in Congress maps to the division in reality. Do you see a way, will we just naturally sort of swing back to unity? Does, uh, is Ray Dalio right that basically there most of the time as we get divided like this, we end up colliding. There's a war, there's bloodshed, and that's the only thing that resets. How do you see our future playing out? Um, hopefully we come back to each other. Here's so here's an issue that I try to get people to understand that's very, very, very hard. I know this to be true, and nobody really likes this statement. We have this default assumption that human beings are truth-seeking machines. That is absolutely not true. Truth is an instrument that we use to increase our pleasure. Humans, at the end of the day, are pleasure-seeking or preference-seeking, you can say. And if you keep thinking that humans are truth-seeking, then you've got a frame of reference by which to evaluate the world that breaks it every single turn. For instance, the internet exists today. Everybody should essentially be a PhD in every subject. If you really wanted, you can know anything, but clearly that's not how the internet is used. If anything, the internet has been used in some ways to further more disinformation than ever before or more misinformation that people are so wrong on things, right? But how could that be the case when all the information is right there? Because people don't use the information to seek truth. People use the information to make themselves happy. Um, when you've got people, when, when you've got people in this in this mindset that they're truth seeking, then they mistake all the pleasure seeking they do for seeking truth. That's why I like, I run into so many people like, Oh yeah. Like I've, I've seen all the studies on this and I know this is true. They say, I've seen all the studies. What they really mean is they heard this on an episode of Joe Rogan or Tim pool. That's what they mean. And it's like, you haven't seen the studies and you're, you're totally delusional. Um, when you, when you think about that particular thing. So my, my thesis is that we're living in a, not an unprecedented moment in history, but at a unique thing. And if you take Ray Dalio's framework, I, it feels directionally correct, which is that every empire goes through six cycles and the sixth cycle is complete and total collapse. And he pegs us at somewhere five and a half 
uh, phase five. And oh half. yeah. And so my concern is like the car that goes off the, the hill because people are not thinking for themselves largely, they are taking the sort of group stance that you end up getting this, this increasing polarization, which we've seen over and over in history. And as you polarize, there's something that has to bring you back together. Now it can be something shared, right? So at the beginning of COVID, I think we all secretly hoped it was going to bring us together. Um, and it did super, super briefly. And then we rebounded way back to yeah. where we were, maybe even farther. Uh, and then just throughout history, and, and Ray did a book called The Changing World Order, where he basically went over the last 500 years of history, showed every empire that rose, every reserve currency, they all follow this exact six phase pattern. Okay. And so there's, you, you can just sort of overlay where's the US. So Ray Dalio pegs the likelihood of US going into a civil war at 40%. Um, and this is a guy, nobody has spent more money researching this historical pattern and nobody has proven that they can read the pattern better. He's built the largest hedge fund in the world by betting on these movements more effectively than, than anybody else. And so it was pretty unnerving for me to run into him backstage at Dubai. And uh, he was just like, you know, basically it all comes down to how people are with each other. Um, you want to live somewhere in the world where people are going to be good to each other. And he's like, I'm hopeful that America finds our footing. But usually at this point, it it requires, not requires, usually at this point, what plays out is some sort of violent movement that redistributes wealth and hits the reset button. Yeah. Um, you seen the movie Men in Black? Yes. Okay. There's a quote, there's an incredibly profound quote in that movie um, that is, is very funny. I've spent a lot of time the past few weeks thinking about it. It's when um, Jay goes to Kay um, and he's on the bench or whatever and he's asking him, like, why don't we just reveal that aliens exist? Like, why can't we tell people that, like, people are smart? And um, Kay's response is, uh, or fuck, is it Jay or Kay? I forget which one. Um, uh, I don't remember. Tommy, um, the, the Tommy Lee Jones. Yeah, Tommy Lee Jones character responds to Will Smith. I think he's K. He might. I, th- I thought he was K. He responds and he says, "A person is smart. People are stupid. People are dumb, panicky animals. And in groups, they always act in dumb ways." And immediately, that seemed like, "Oh yeah, cool. That's true. Like people have a lot of when they're in big groups, they do dumb things and mobs, or whatever, and an individual person." And I started to think about that a lot more over the past couple of weeks. It was like, "Why is that exactly?" And I think that what happens is, is in a one-on-one conversation, there is a lot of social pressure to at least let the things that I'm saying like impact you in some way. You want to hear me. You want to engage in a conversation with me. In a one-on-one conversation, people magically become very, very, very reasonable because there's a lot of like social reward for doing so. I'm rewarding you by listening to you. You're rewarding me by listening to me. And we talk to each other. There's, there's like a good thing that's happening there. But as soon as that person turns around and goes back to their group, there is very little social reward for being like, hey, maybe we shouldn't do this thing. Hey, maybe we change our mind. You can get socially eviscerated for that. So there's a lot of social reward. Uh, there's a lot of social pressure to 100% act in accordance with the group. And when you look at the state of the United States, something scary that's happening is it's probably okay for those groups to exist on small levels because different people have different communities and you represent different things, but these groups are becoming more dissimilar to each other and they're becoming larger and larger and larger and larger and larger. So you're growing these two massive groups that are becoming ideologically pure, even if they shouldn't. Should a liberal in like Seattle really have the same opinions as like a liberal in Miami? Should a liberal in New York really agree with a liberal in Los Angeles? 
maybe. Um, but they are today, right? Like nowadays, like if you ask half the liberals or half the progressives in the country, like who's your favorite person in Congress? They're going to say like AOC. And then it's like, well, who's your representative? I don't know. <laughs> Right, so you got these groups that are becoming huge because of the internet and hugely ideologically similar, and I think that's like the scary thing that's driving us apart from each other in like a really negative way. Do you see a way to back out of that, like, or or is my greatest fear right that this only runs its course when it runs up against so much trauma that it sort of resets everybody's groupthink? Um, yeah, I mean that can happen. Uh, we can all start killing each other, and eventually things will change. Um, the optimistic path that I have is I think people really like what I do. I think I have a lot of fans in my audience. Um, I tend to work really well in every single show I go on. People like to watch me do things there. And I think part of what people like is the idea that what I'm trying to demonstrate is you can be open to other people without being a spineless fuck hack by like somebody like Dave Rubin. Okay. Um, like you can be open to other ideas. Like, listen, I'll hear you out. I think you're fucking wrong, but at least like I'll give you the time of day I'll listen to you and I'll discuss like why I think you're right or wrong. I think if more people started to take that approach, I think we would be in a much better spot for it. Because right now the issue isn't that we disagree with each other. The issue is we think the other side is fucking evil. Like that's the problem. But then also, something that's very hard to keep in mind is like historically, we've probably always felt like this too to some extent. So it's hard to know like how unique it is. I think the internet makes it unique because the communities are growing larger and we can punish and reward each other on larger scales. I think that makes it unique, but... Yeah, I also have a theory about the internet. It was interesting actually researching you... um, it's funny how you and I do very similar things, but they are really different as you start getting under the hood mm-hmm. of the way that you refer to the internet, capital T, capital I, like it, how do you think of chat, the internet? Like, is it, is it a sort of living, breathing organism to you? How do you think about it? Cause when I think about it, it's servers and, um, connections, but it isn't a, uh, it doesn't have its own sort of personality. I don't think much about it anyway. As oh, I totally do. Yeah. It's definitely got its own personality. Like every, it's like a whole other world, a whole other geography with other communities and sub communities that engage with each other in certain ways and come together and split apart. And yeah. Now, is that something that people need to become aware of if we're going to find a path to not reconciliation? I don't want to put words in your mouth, but easing the, the pull apart. That we have to be aware that the internet is like a living, breathing thing with different Yeah, like, or? do we do we have to come to an understanding? Like, for somebody like me, who I don't think of it like that, so am I missing an opportunity? Am I tone deaf to, I'm on the thing, but am I missing a way of communicating and connecting with um, that sort of special organism in a way that could be meaningful? I mean, I think it ultimately depends on what who you're trying to communicate with and what you're trying to achieve. So like if your goal is to connect with gamers on Twitch, then you need to be aware of that world and what the rules are and how everything works in there. Um, Let me lay the problem out maybe more yeah, clearly. So what what I see is a overarching problem that we have is there's a breakdown of narrative that the internet, the way that I see it, is all of these, it it is a technological infrastructure that allows for hyper-fragmentation. And in hyper-fragmenting, in allowing people to go down these really narrow, deep rabbit holes. So with, with these very fragmented things, you start to get a breakdown of an overarching narrative. And without that overarching shared narrative, this goes back to, for me, and I think we agree on this, I think we live in a hyper-deterministic world, and that um, the way that you say it is, people may be irrational, but they're never random. Yeah, That feels right to me. And I feel like 
there are billiard balls bouncing into each other that if we step back, we'd be able to predict where this ends. Um, and my fear is that we can't stop it and that it ends somewhere in just complete disarray and dysfunction because of the hyperfragmentation. But I really want someone to have the insight on how we stop it. That's my like secret thing. I uh-huh. don't know how realistic that is. I'm just curious. Have you ever played Mocha Solid one or two or three or anything? No, I don't even know what sounds you just made. Fuck. PlayStation Mocha games. Solid? Metal Gear Solid. Metal Gear Solid. Oh, so I just didn't hear you. Yes, fun. I did. I oh. played uh, Metal Gear Solid 2 fanatically. Oh, okay. So, Fanatically. Yes. The end of that game is unbelievably prophetic about the state of the internet today. Um, and the the whole end of... So for Metal Gear Solid 2, the game plays a big bait and switch on you because you think what you're trying to stop at the end of the game is a giant mecha robot killing civilization. But at the end of the game, what you're actually stopping was the AI GW and what, and it was basically just a bunch of statements on the problems of the internet, which were funny because this game came out in like 1998. But basically um, what the main characters were, it was like, Oh my God, you're going to be creating and rewriting history. And what the AIs were saying was, no, our goal is not to erase content, but to create context. The big problem with the internet today is there's an ever increasing amount of information preserved in all of its triteness across servers all over the world, collecting at accelerated rates where nobody has really any idea what's going on. And whoever can control the overall context of the information is the one that basically has the key to controlling the narratives of the future. Jesus. Yeah, I know. And it's funny because this game came out before the internet really existed. It was like 1998. We were using like AOL keywords. But yeah, I thought going back and like listening to a lot of those older conversations, like Jesus Christ. But I feel like the internet today is truly like that, that there is no overarching narrative discreetly, epistemically. We live in totally fucking different worlds now, right? Um, And that's, that's my goal as usually. There's like some commensurability that exists in debate. That's why I like debate is because it forces two people with dissimilar views to have a conversation with each other. Those types of conversations need to happen way more. It's really, really, really important. And I think content creators can be the leaders on that. I think it's possible to do that. They just need to get off their ass and do it. Yeah. It's amazing, man. If, if people really embrace that and they took that clarion call, uh, I think it'd be interesting. That was a big part of the reason. So I'm assuming you don't know my content. And if you do, you certainly don't know my old content. So I used to do uh, just empowering content. So okay. it was all mindset focused. And then when the pandemic popped off, I got really scared, not for myself, but for other people. Cause I had just like just sold my company. So previously I had 3000 employees, a thousand of them grew up in the inner cities. And so I knew poverty up close and seeing people that you love walking towards the precipice. Cause I didn't know we were going to print money. So I was just like really freaked out. And so I was like, God, what am I going to do? Uh, so I completely changed the That's structure a huge company. Three, nice job. Jesus. Yeah. Thanks, yeah. man. <laughs> Uh, so I changed the tenor of my content to try to as rapid, rapidly as I could address the biggest problems I thought they were going to face. So I started diving into like finance and how to save money and like how to weather the storm. And, uh, and so anyway, it ends up taking me very far afield from where I started, but constantly trying to get to the point where I could help people think through think well through the problems that they were going to face. And hopefully, and look, this, sometimes I feel like I'm spitting into the wind, but hopefully um, give people a framework by which we could come back together and not have to fly off the cliff. Yeah. I think at the end of the day, the most important thing that you can get people to do is at a very basic level is to talk to each other. 
it's, I don't, the problem is that like our spaces are becoming so rapidly divided that you can select for people that agree with your opinion on a really negative way. Um, I'm so lucky that I've had a foot in both worlds because I grew up before the internet was like really a huge thing. So even though I'm like, I'm a massive fucking internet geek now, right? Also like people are like, oh, like what's it like living in Miami Beach? And it's like, my apartment is air conditioning. That's really the only thing that fucking matters to me. Um, so I'm very much like an online fucking geek guy, but I love real world interactions. If I can talk to people in the real world, if I can hang out with people, if I can speak in front of people, that's super fun for me. I love it. Nothing online replaces that. Um, there's something to be said for interacting with different types of people in real life because you have no fucking idea, one, what a person is actually like, and two, the appetite that you can have for so many different types of people. Like when you get on Tinder and people start talking like, oh, I wouldn't date him. He's a Republican. Oh, I wouldn't date her. She's got brunette hair. Oh, I wouldn't be with that guy. He's not religious. Oh, I would blah, blah, blah. Like people like try to hyper select for their groups of friends online and shit. And the reality is, is you could meet some people that are surprisingly different from you in so many ways. And you can still like, get along with them and have fun and like be chill and stuff. But um, it's getting harder and harder to create like those warm spaces where people can just be together and be talking with each other. Because, um, man, I remember, dude, even I do events like in, um, in Tennessee and Alabama and shit. I think, uh, I think it was in Tennessee where I'm in very conservative areas giving speeches and like fighting with a lot of like really conservative people. And even when I go to the end, a lot of the people coming out that are even fans of mine are fans of the other guy that I'm debating. They're conservative. Um, I remember one of these things I had, um, one of my fans came out to this and she's a trans, um, trans woman. And just, I think that them interacting with her over like a two hour dinner probably did more in their minds to like positively impact their view of trans people than like a million hours of YouTube content ever could. Because it's, I've said this before. Oh fuck, here, I'll give another example. I know this from the world of gaming. It is very hard to be mean to people on voice chat. If you play CSGO, I don't know if it's true in Destiny, some people can voice chat, some people can type. If you were to play like CSGO and you hop into a game and somebody's typing, that guy is always the rager. They're always gonna start talking shit because it's just, it's too hard to be mean to somebody when you hear like a human voice. Um, so bringing back these like spaces where we can be like talking to each other like face to face and not like fucking screaming each other and dehumanizing each other on the internet, I don't know how you do it, but... It ties into that problem with women too, where it's like for men dealing with women, we're like, if you want to get good at talking to women, you have to talk to more women, just be in spaces with them. If you want to get good at like humanizing the, the, um, political, politically different people then you, you just have to be in space where you're talking with them and communicating with them. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. Tell me about your experience with drugs. I have seriously contemplated, uh, doing, um, psychedelics. Uh huh. And honestly, the only reason I haven't is because they are illegal in California. Okay. But I was recently in New York. Had I had one more day, I was literally in the store holding a packet of mushrooms and I'm like, uh, like how long do they last? And as it turned out, he was like, Oh, it's like four hours and it might mess up your sleep. And I was like, fuck, then I can't do it tonight. Cause I had to do something the next day. Uh, and then that was the only day that I was there. So I ended up not doing it, but I know that you've had some experimentation. Your first one didn't go well, but seems like you've done since then. And yeah, um, back. different drugs do different things. You could take them for different reasons. Just a drug is a drug. It'll alter your experience. The altered experience can give you a lot of perspective on your normal experiences though. Um, you said something a couple hours ago about, and it made me want to bring up drugs. You said something about how, I think it was like people needing to realize how important like the emotional aspect of themselves are. It was something along those lines. Um, I don't remember the context was we were talking about this, but when you said that, uh, something that I wanted to respond with is if you want to understand how much like your mood or your emotions or your environment affects you, a really good way to learn that is to do a lot of drugs. Um, when it comes to psychedelics, I always assume before doing mushrooms that like 
especially me, I'm a very logical person. So my mind is probably like 95% logic and reason and like 5% like mood and dumb shit that I'm above and beyond. Um, and after doing mushrooms, like breaking apart my mind a lot and becoming more aware of myself, I see now that I'm like 10 to 15% is like very logically driven. And there's this whole emotional side underneath that I have to pay attention to because it can totally run all my other processes awry if I'm not like cognizant of what's going on. Um, that's interesting. Yeah. So there was a quote, I'm going to paraphrase that you said about your first experience. Uh, and you said it was deeply unpleasant. You were trying to explain it to somebody and you said, it made me realize I felt like I had pierced through a veil to a deeper truth. And I realized that sometimes the truth doesn't, isn't good or doesn't make you happy. I forget the exact quote, but it was like, truth isn't always good. And I was like, whoa. Yeah. Oh, I said this earlier that truth is instrumental for pleasure. It's not actually a good thing. Um, this is just a weird thing, but um, it's going to be real. This is going to sound really weird and hard to explain. Okay. Um, for okay, just for a quick perspective, if somebody wants to take a fun dose of mushrooms, if you're, it's your first time, you don't take a fun dose, and you want to see things and maybe feel things, two grams is like a really good starter dose. Maybe one if you want to be really safe. Two is probably a good starter dose. Um, three point five is what's recommended to have like a full mushroom trip. So you're gonna like go places a little bit. You're gonna have like a really fun time. You're gonna see a lot of things. You're gonna be very high. It's gonna be very intense. Um, once you go to like five grams and beyond, you're in like some like otherworldly territory. The first time that I wanted to do mushrooms, um, I was with a friend. I'd smoked a bit of weed and done edibles and stuff. And the impact that they had on me prior to mushrooms was just kind of like I was like giggly and happy or whatever. And so I was like, I want to just, I'm going to have a full mushroom trip. Fuck this shit. Okay. So um, instead of doing two grams, I decided to do 3.5. So I want my full trip and I'm sitting there on the couch and all I'm thinking is 30 minutes goes past and I'm like, I know what's going to happen. I'm going to get high. It's going to be giggly and fucking stupid. And all these people that said they're like psychedelics are like crazy, blah, blah, blah. They're going to say, oh, it's because you didn't do enough, blah, blah, blah. So I decided to eat another seven grams of mushrooms. What the hell? Yeah, so how'd you pick that number? Because um, I, well, they were separated in bags, 3.5 each. So I took my bag and then I just took two more bags and I just ate it all. Without talking to anybody. Um, well, there was another guy there and he was like, are you sure you want, Reckful actually was the guy who's trying to kill himself, but, um, not because of that, sorry, but, um, Reckful was there and he was like, are you sure you want to do this? Like, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, I want to have the worst trip possible. I just want, let's make this the most insane shit because fuck it. Why not? Um, and yeah, so for about an hour passed, and then I started to see, I started to get high, which was like really cool. The colors on the wall, I've never seen anything like it. And then about 30 minutes later, I'm like in tunnels of fucking black, fucking everything about my entire reality is being shattered and fucking destroyed for the next like three or four hours. Um, in the process of that happening, uh, a couple of weird things happen. So at one part of this trip, I am very much, a lot of this is hard to describe because it's feelings more so than just things you're seeing, but like a feeling that I got, and there were a lot of different feelings, but at one point I'm like basically sitting on the couch and I kind of realized that like I had taken enough drugs to break out of whatever bullshit I was stuck in before. And now I discovered like the true reality and the true universe was me sitting on this couch with three other beings watching a universe TV that does nothing. And this whole room is like the entire fucking, this is everything. And I just remember thinking while I was in that state, I was thinking the whole time I was like, I made a mistake. I actually don't even care that this is reality. I understand the other thing was fake, but I really just want to go back to the other thing where I thought other people were real and there was a whole universe people to interact with because this is horrible. And obviously coming out of that trip, there were a whole bunch of other phases to that trip too because I took way too many mushrooms. But coming out of that, I remember it was like, that was a little bit of an interesting thing to me. It's like, I always would have thought that like, no matter how bad the truth is, I always want to know what's true and real. But when I dig in a little bit deeper, that's not actually true. The only truth that I really want 
is truth that I can act on to make my life better. And generally, every single truth you learn, usually you can do that. But there's probably a lot of truths out there that are not like, do I really want to know what's on like the other side of the moon? If there's like nothing I'm ever going to do with that knowledge, probably not. Um, and even if I think of like uncomfortable truths, usually they're truths that I can act on to make my life better. So for instance, let's say somebody says, well, here's an uncomfortable truth. You're going to die tomorrow. Like, uh, you know, wouldn't you want to know that? Or, or I bet you'd want to know that, but that's not a good truth, is it? And it's like, well, no, that is a good truth because if I knew I was going to die tomorrow, I would act on that information today. I'd contact loved ones, gamble all my money, do whatever, you know? Um, yeah. But that, that was like a thing. Yeah. That was just like one thing that. <laughs> why, why do it again? Like if it's so horrible. I like to live my life turned up to 11. Okay. Um, I don't know. It was a really, it's. You have a weird relationship with things that suck. Maybe, but it's very challenging and it's very cool. It's, there's like the crazy thing you're going to, how old are you? Have you, do you ever say or about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not, I'm an open book. Uh, I am 47. Okay. I was 30 even, and it was like still like so long. At 47, when you take psychedelics, it's going to blow your fucking mind because there is a whole other, you ever play Zelda growing up? A little bit, yeah. Fuck. In a lot of Zelda game games, there's like the first world and then you unlock the second world, usually through a Master Sword or through some other thing. There is like a whole second world right now that exists that you've never had access to before. And it sounds stupid saying that, but when you do, hopefully if you do, if you try mushrooms or LSD for the first time, it's going to be like a whole other, it's so amazingly, unbelievably cool. Hmm. Um, and it's hard because the only perspective you have on it right now, you drink. Uh, a little, a little bit. bit it's nothing like being drunk because a lot of people think that psychedelics is like oh like you're like goofy and weird it's you it's it's like an otherworldly lucidity it's not just like you're like oh, i'm so high it's like you're sober in another dimension it's like a whole other fucking thing it's so cool sorry but yeah. so sam harris is this funny this is my only was i did microdose psilocybin and i felt like i was getting tipsy it was yeah whatever. you feel like yeah i was hoping it would make me more creative it didn't so i was like whatever um but Sam Harris's description of five grams, which is crazy that you did 10 and a half, uh, was that he was like, I forgot that I even took drugs. It was completely horrible. And you think it's going to last forever. Yes. And I was just like, Oh God, uh, I don't get why we're doing this. Like it, the experiences are totally, totally, totally different. So like, let, let, let me give you an example. Right. So like from that 10 gram trip, right. The, first of all, the passage of time is on. You can't, it doesn't. Right. There are times where I would let, like, let me give you an example for my trip. So here was a time where like, I would kind of like come in and I'd like kind of feel out. And when I would sink back, I would have all these thoughts about being in houses or streets. Like I'm living like months of time. And in do they all places. feel meaningful? Um, some of them do, not all of them do, but I recorded this trip. It's on my YouTube channel. And when I play back, when I look at like these moments in time. You recorded this? Yeah, because I wanted to, because it was a crazy interesting. Yeah, I want to see what does it look like on the outside. Now I got to watch this. And uh, when I look at the, when I look at this thing happening, so I feel like I'm going back, having like months of time passed, I'm coming back. When I watch the video, what I look like is, huh. uh, it's like two seconds of time is passing and the passage of time is totally fucked on. It's like, there were so many times I like pick up my phone cause it's like nine 42 and I'll set my phone down and I'm just like, it's so much is like going on. And then I'll pick up my phone again. And it's like, it's still nine 42, not even a minute has passed. And I'm like, no shot. Um, it's just a crazy, 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 interesting. But so that's like an example. And then there's also the, like at the peak of the trip, I'm like, I can't see anything. I'm like floating in another dimension. I don't even remember myself. I remember like a thing that used to be called me. I'm like completely blasted out of like, yeah, like you got to pick my body up a movie run. I would have any connection to the outside world. That's like a crazy trip. A more fun trip um, is like, uh, 
you do psychedelics, the come up on mushrooms may be pretty rough, but eventually what will happen is, is like, you could be like in this other world where your state of perception is completely altered. And if you're, if it's really fun and special, you're with another person and you can talk and have a conversation and you're just, you're connecting on like levels of deepness that you never even knew that you had with another person who's connecting on a level of deepness that you never knew they had. And you're doing it in this totally altered state of mind where the colors are different, where things are swirling, your feelings are different. And it's like so magical and cool and special. It's like, you're going to like Disney world in your mind, except you're still like nine years old and you appreciate it all. Um, it's very, 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 very cool. And nothing is quite like it ever. And for like, we're LSD, you can do this for 12 hours for five bucks. <laughs> but um, yeah, so not all of it has to be like traumatic and horrible and terrible. Like on certain doses, just so much fun. We did, um, I did LSD like a week ago uh, with my wife and like walking outside on LSD, it's just like, seeing like the trees and how vibrant everything is walking around the city you hear everything i hear people talking in alley i hear the sounds of the cars everything is like three-dimensional and rich and vibrant it sucks i'm like explain this but you know like when you try you'll we'll have another conversation okay and then you'll come back and you're like it was everything you said and more trust it's crazy yeah no i can't wait to try it mm-hmm. actually pretty intriguing yeah brother where can people follow you uh youtube.com slash destiny instagram.com slash destiny and kick.com slash destiny There it is. All right, everybody, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care. Peace.